0: You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. As I mentioned before, we're on week four of a series called Word Made Known, uh, going through the book of 1 John. So we're on First John 3, as you read. Um, and I thought I'd start today just by reminding us about some of the context of this book, because I think it's important to uh, some of the things that John is saying in the passage we're reading today. So, the believers in the church that John was writing to, um, they were being tempted by people, some of whom used to be a part of their own church, um, to believe a message a message that was contrary to the gospel that they had first heard uh, from John, who heard it from Jesus. Um, so, and uh, yeah, so they were, trying to, they were tempted to believe a message that was contrary to what they had been taught. And so, what was the false teaching? Um, that was infiltrating the community, uh, the first thing was that they believed that, our, or what, what they were being tempted to believe was that the spirit was entirely good. So things that are spiritual, the spirit is entirely good. But physical matter is entirely bad. It's evil. Um, and so therefore, from this teaching, a lot of things follow. So uh, God, who is good, uh, could therefore not have anything to do with evil. And therefore, God can have nothing to do with things that are physical or physical matter. Um, And therefore, God uh, could not have had anything to do with the physical body. Um, So Jesus must not have had a physical body. And if what follows from that is that if Jesus didn't have a physical body, that means he didn't die as an atonement or a payment for our sins uh, to give us new life, which is the crux of the gospel message, which is why John is so upset about it. And instead, what was being taught is that uh, salvation is available only to people who have this special revelation about, uh, you know, the spirit is good, matter is bad. Um, And what's interesting is that uh, the result was that they were believing that how salvation happens is you get released from the body and uh, that what you do with your body really doesn't matter. So there's no rules really for living. You can do what you want with your body sexually you can do what you want with your body otherwise there's no real moral restraints um, because your body doesn't matter and the body is evil anyway and what matters is the special spiritual revelation uh, that these few had and so this teaching was coming into the church and the believers that were there were being tempted to believe it and their own former church members were the ones who were bringing this in so um, the purpose of John's letter was that he wanted to encourage the people to remain in fellowship with God and with others, um, in despite all these what we talked about last week—anti-Messiah, anti-Christ ideas that they were be tempted, being tempted to believe. And in last week's message, um, Michael talked about the concept of antichrist uh, and challenged us to instead of thinking about this idea of antichrist as uh, this far out idea, which is very much misused today, um, where conspiracy theorists will try to tell you that certain presidents are the antichrist and vice versa. um, He drew us to think about the heart of that message and uh, really to think about how we are all tempted to be antichrist in certain ways and how we all Uh, sometimes replace Jesus as Messiah in our own lives um, and instead rely on other things to give us security and significance. So that's something we can all relate to, I think. And so we talked about how to overcome this was to remain before God uh, in the tension with our doubts and questions and in fellowship and relationship with those who were maybe doubting that they are right, like just to remain in relationship was the point. Um, And then if we did that, the Holy Spirit would teach us what's right and true, that we don't need to listen to all these other teachings, but the Holy Spirit himself would be the one to um, teach us what's right and true as we remain in relationship. So, this week, our text in 1 John 3 continues with an encouragement to those who have stayed and were choosing to remain faithful in spite of the de- temptation to doubt uh, and follow these false teachings that were being um, brought into the community. So, let's dive right in. Um, it starts with uh, John interrupting, kind of interrupting the flow of his teaching with a moment of emotional declaration. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. I think we can read over that and just, you know, say it. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. But, like, up until this point, he's been addressing them as children. He's been, you know, teaching them right and wrong. But in this moment, he stops and he says, see what great love... um, what love has been lavished on us. The word see in the Greek means to really perceive, to behold, to consider very deeply. Um, So he's calling them to really do that. And lavished uh, can also be translated as bestowed upon or providing or supplying or given. So basically this, or this love is such a gift and it's been given to us. Um, and then to be called uh, is to be named, to be adopted as children. So uh, he's calling his the believers to uh, consider the great gift that has been given to them and that despite the fact that they're sinners, despite the fact that they were far from God, despite the fact that they still sometimes feel far from God and make mistakes, um, that God gave them the gift of adoption, that he made them his children. He took them into relationship and that this is a miracle. And you can't... So the idea of adoption is a legal... Thing. It's that when you become someone's child, you're actually their child. You legally sign the papers; they are yours. They are legally yours. It's bound, and um, it's not that that is something that is done. And so, this is what uh, John is drawing the attention to: is just that how incredible, how miraculous, how amazing is it that we are called God's children? And so, First John one verse twelve to thirteen says, and just this is John's gospel where he outlines uh, Jesus' life and teachings and his experience of that. It says, to all who did receive him, this this is John 1, verse 12 to 13, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent, nor a human's decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And this is really important because um, the idea of whose child you are in those days was really, really important that uh, it it decided a lot of things because it was a paternalistic society and who your father was was a really important deal. So this is saying that um, for those who believe in his name, we actually get to be God's children. This is a new thing and He's now our father. So this kind of love that God has given is wonderful. It's incomprehensible. It's lavish. It's beyond what they ever deserved or what should be expected. And I think so often we gloss over that and we're like, oh yeah, regard the children. But to actually stop and ponder it's something that's good for us to do. And so this is what John interjects in the midst of all his teaching, just an encouragement as they're being questioned, as they're experiencing doubt, like just see that you are a child of God. So this is their new core identity in the midst of all the other competing ideas that they were facing. Um, This is who they really are. He emphasizes at the end, he says, uh, God's children, this is who you are. So he's reminding of them of it, first because he's captivated, he's an old man, he's seen a lot of things, he's been around, and this simple truth is what dramatically changed his life, and, and that's why he's, in his old age, devoting everything to it. And he's also telling them, because it's more than a fact they should know, um, yeah, it is their identity. And this is important because uh, our core identity, who we are, is naturally what we live our lives out of. What we believe about ourselves and our world is not, can't be separated because it affects what we do, how we act, how we relate to one another. And uh, a little while later, uh, John unpacks the implications of receiving or not receiving uh, this new identity as a child of God and we're gonna talk about that in a bit. So uh, John goes on to say that uh, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So the issue of knowledge, uh, what is what we know, being known, how we know, all of those things, um, it's a really core theme to 1 John, but partially, mostly, because the false teaching that was being put forth in that time was all about this special knowledge. And so he's emphasizing, how do we know what we know and why? So the Greek word for to know, it repeats itself a lot of times, 25 times, there's two versions, 25 times, I'm not even gonna try to say it. <laughs> I'm not even gonna try to say it. So 25 times is one version and 25, or 15 times is the other version. And uh, I was gonna ask Michael Touchton how to say this and I forgot, what? What? No seco? And then the other one is oida. I'm looking at my theologian friends, and I don't know. Sorry about that. I'll work on my Greek next time. So, <laughs> in so in this particular chapter of First John three, um, the word "no" in both of its forms is used 14 times, which is a lot of times. And it's just if you read the text and actually circle all the "noes," it's the, it's a thought that's repeated. So. Um, after his emotive outburst about the miracle of being God's child, he goes on to encourage the believers by saying the fact that the world doesn't know you. Uh, To say it a different way, you will be unknown in the world. (laughs) Their way of living won't make sense. It won't be recognized. The things they believe will seem foolish. And... Uh, to those who haven't internalized the message of Jesus and have not known Jesus himself, who haven't experienced them, the message these believers are believing and called to rest their lives on, it's just gonna seem ridiculous. So to the people John was writing this to, this was meant to be an encouragement. But as we're reading this, does this sound like good news to you or bad news? (laughs) If we're honest, the desire to be known is one of our core desires. It's if not the core desire in all of us. It motivates our careers, it motivates our desires for marriage and relationship, how we spend our money, how we relate to our spouses and friends, how we spend our time, what we do with our lives. So think about for a minute the challenges that you've gone through in the last little while, in the last year, the last years, the last week. How many of them were because you were, were, the source of it was because you were misunderstood or unrecognized by someone you wanted to be known and understood by? How many times, I'll let you rest on that for one second, think about it. (laughs) And how many times have you hesitated or not done what you knew you should do because you feared not being understood by someone you wanted to be known and understood by? I know for me, that's most of the things that I either do or don't do when I'm Anxious, which these people were really anxious because a lot of things were trying to blow apart their whole ideology. So our temptation to be known in the world is in many cases uh, what will lead our hearts astray from living the life that God calls us to live. Um, This is what leads us to sin. It's what separates us from relationship with God and others. And the someone who we are wanting to be known and understood and recognized by the most reveals who our Messiah is. So when we're talking about the idea of having antichrist in each of us, if we stop and think about who are we trying to be known by, that I think points to what is the Christ in our life. Who is the Messiah? Who is the one we are turning to for salvation, for security, for significance, So just ask yourselves, first of all, are you unknown by the world? Is your life a little bit weird in the fact that um, people look at you and they're like, why are you doing that? Now, I'm not talking about being unknown in the sense of being like weirdly spiritual and set apart, um, because actually John's trying to correct that kind of teaching where you're, you know, this spiritual thing and what you do with your spirit is different than what you do with your body. It's not this out there thing, but does your life look different than what you see in the lives around you? Is it different? Are you risking being misunderstood? So how do we overcome the temptation to be known by the world? In verse two, uh, he says, dear friends, which is also translated as beloved or loved ones. He says, now we are God's children. Right now, we are God's children. So we've got a father who knows and loves us now. So for them, no matter what they're going through, the anxieties they're facing, no matter what anxieties we're facing at work, at school, in our relationships, we are God's children now. Even if we made mistakes, even if we've screwed things up, even if we've we screwed up, we're still God's children now. And we don't have to try to work our way to make that better. We are God's children. So... Um, Even as they are struggling, even as they're uh, questioning, even as they're being tempted to doubt and run away from the harder path that they are called to, just in the same way their friends did, this lavish love is the reality that's available to them to live out of right now. And this is the reality that is available for us to live out of right now. But then he goes on to say in verse 2 that what we will be has not yet been made known. But when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So what he admits here is that there are things that we've not seen. So on one hand, he's seen God in the flesh. He's walked with Jesus. He's experienced this. Um, but what he admits here is that there are some things that we've still not experienced. and But he says that, uh, yeah, we haven't seen him in all his glory and all of his magnificence and all of its, his power. We still live on the earth, in the flesh, in a world that is broken. And so our picture of who God is, is not never, it's not absolutely clear right now, uh, even though Jesus has revealed himself, but there, there will be a time, he says, that we will see him clearly, that there will be a time when Christ will return, where he will return in the body, in the flesh, and we will see him as he really is, and the best is yet to come. And, uh, And that's important, because John, his whole letter, at the beginning, he starts with talking about how uh, he touched Jesus, that they were touched by him, that they saw him, that they experienced his presence, his physical presence, and... So when he appeared, it had an effect, which is why this teaching, this whole idea that Christ didn't have a body was a big problem because his physicality and his presence and him actually touching and being with them and being a human being with them, that is what changed them. And then going on to like overcoming the grave and all that stuff, but like that had an impact. And so what he's saying here is that there is something about Christ appearing and about seeing him as he really is that causes people to live differently. And seeing him how he really is gives us hope. This is the only time he talks about hope in this uh, in this part directly. But so Jesus' flesh and blood presence is important because it showed us what Life, living life as it was intended to be looked like, a life of perfect love. In the midst of the brokenness and hopelessness that we see around us um, and that those people saw around them, the followers of Jesus, they saw Jesus. And uh, those who really considered and internalized and received this message, they were compelled to live that way too, which is why John is so emphatic in this portion. In the whole letter, he's so upset that this truth is being stolen. Now, there were some who weren't op- open hearted, who didn't receive this truth. They saw Jesus walking among them. They saw him do all these cool things and miracles. He saw how he related to people. Um, and as it says, as we were talking about before, uh, the world, those who wanted to walk, in the ways of the world. So those who wanted to continue to walk the path that the world was going, they didn't know him. And what that means is that he, they didn't receive him. They didn't internalize this message. And in the first chapter of John, uh, just before the part we read uh, just a minute ago, verses 10 to 11, it says, Jesus was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So... For those who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God as it follows. So yeah, so those who actually saw him, that he got to be kid, his kids. And uh, being given this gift and seeing the way that Jesus lived brings us hope, or it should have, it should bring us hope and it should have implications on the way we live. So the next section, uh, verses four to 10 talks talk about, um, how having this hope causes their lives to look different. So, um, it says that causing or the, having this hope, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And then it kind of unpacks this idea. So, um, we can read all these verses, which you did. Um, and read these ideas of purity and not sinning, sinning is like this legalistic righteousness that we are trying to make we, we don't want to be children of the devil so we're going to do everything that's really good and we want to be a child of god and, and do this out of this striving mentality but that's not what he's saying here remember in the beginning of the book uh, the book of John that we in the beginning of our series we talked about first uh, John verse 1 and verse 10 and First John, verse two, no, First John chapter two, verse one, um, it says that those who are without sin, uh, though, it's, sorry, it says that those who are without sin make Jesus, or say, sorry guys, those who say that they are without sin make Jesus to be a liar and that the truth of God is not in them. And it says that when we do sin, there is an advocate to help us. So clearly, this is not what John is talking about. He's not talking about, you're a children of, child of the devil, and you know, you're know you separate, and you're a child of God, and you're special, and you have this special knowledge, which is some places in the body of Christ, that's how it's lived out, and that's the expectation that we have. And that's how we internalize this message, because maybe we've never heard the true gospel before. So what is he talking about here? What is he saying when he says that Jesus' appearance, Jesus' appearing to them, caused them to purify themselves just as he is pure? So let's look at some of the things he says. He says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. So no one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who is born of God will continue to sin Verse six says, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And verse nine, it says, God's seed remains in them. They cannot go go on sinning because they have been born of God. So being a child of God has implications. So it's not about trying harder to purify ourselves. It's about receiving and truly internalizing our new identity as children of God receiving that means we're gonna live out of that new identity. And the image where it says God's seed, that's an image of reproduction. So you can think about that. It's actually an image of reproduction being someone's child, God's seed, that uh, if a seed is of a certain kind, it'll produce a certain kind of fruit. If a seed is of a certain genetic code, it will produce a certain kind of kid. And so if you're seeing sin around you or in you. The idea is not that you should try harder to be good or pure or righteous. The issue is going back to the thing that God points to at the very beginning of this chapter. Whose child are you? Look at that and remember what source or genetic code you are living out of. So when we see the sin in our lives or in our world, we shouldn't just try to fix it with making more rules. The only hope was that Christ would appear to the people. This is what purifies us. Seeing Christ as he really is is what purifies us. And this leaves none of us with an excuse because I think all of us have had bad images in our lives about what a Christian is. Maybe you don't yet know Jesus and you haven't chosen to follow him. And and the reason is that you've seen Christians and you're like, I don't like what I see. I don't like what I see in the media. I don't like what I see Uh, in the world. I I don't have any good examples. And maybe... You can apply that same logic to different areas of our lives where we replace Christ. Like maybe I've never seen a good marriage and a Christian marriage that I want to aspire to. I've never seen someone actually um, navigate a job in a way that I think is makes sense or whatever. You can think of the issue in your head that maybe makes you draw away from God. But we don't have an excuse because Jesus actually did appear. We have an entire set of scriptures that talk about him. And so when we're questioning, that's where we should go back to, is our source. We've been given a source. And that is what John is inviting them to and so emphatically. He's like, look at this great love that has been lavished on us. We are children of God. That is what we are. Let's live out of that. So in this section, he says two more things about the implications of Christ appearing. He says that he appeared that he may take sins away, Um, that's in verse five. And then in the end of verse eight, it says the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So how we live in this world has great implications on, on the world. And it'll indicate whose mission we're advancing, whose seed are we reproducing in the world. He concludes this section in verse 10, it says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, uh, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. So God wants to establish his kingdom of love on earth and doing what's right and loving one another in this body and then it'll spill outward. But in this section, he's talking about loving your brother and sister in community. Um, So doing what's right in the world, loving one another, that's what's gonna destroy the devil's work. And so for those of us who are like all about wanting to see the enemy like gone, this is what's gonna do it according to this scripture. And if we look at the challenges in our world, the places of brokenness, you usually see people who didn't do what's right and didn't love others. If you think about all the ideas in your head about the things going wrong in the world, that is the issue. And usually these things were done at the expense of people who were the most vulnerable. And yeah, they're usually the recipients of this wrongdoing and lack of love. So we're gonna move on to the next section. Uh, What is love then? So you can flip the page over. So he talks about the story of Cain, which is a story in Genesis 4, verse 1 to 16. If you want to write that down, you can check it out. Genesis 4, verse 1 to 16. So Cain and Abel were brothers. Uh, They were the sons of Adam and Eve, the first people, according to the uh, story in Genesis, the first created beings. Cain, they were both farmers. Cain was a farmer who farmed land, so he farmed fruits and vegetables. And Abel farmed goats and sheep. And one day, and it doesn't even say that it was asked for. It just says one day, Cain uh, gave a part of his harvest to the Lord, to God, as, and then Abel gave, an, and gave, Abel also gave an offering to the Lord. But the two offerings were different. So Abel, it says, brought an offering to the Lord that was of the finest sorts. He brought his firstborn lamb, foreshadowing anyone? Um, if you read the rest of the story, for those of you who don't know, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. So giving lambs is a good uh, thing. <laughs> and all the fat portions. So this was like the best part of his lamb. It was like the best part, the part that everybody would want. He, this he gave to the Lord. Abel gave that to the Lord. And uh, yeah, so he gave him the best parts of his labor, the things that he was given. Cain also gave a part of his fruit and vegetable harvest. It doesn't really say what, what, what that was, um, but he did give a part of it. And the story goes on to say that God had the highest regard and respect uh, for Abel And his offering but for Cain's offering he showed no regard and respect and then Cain gets angry he talked and God actually invites him into a conversation and God asks him why are you angry and he tells him like if you had done what is right you would also receive this respect and acceptance and but if you do not do what is right sin is crouching at your door it desires to devour you but you must master it is what it says there. So again, is God here talking about like, you just didn't give me the best of your best and I'm trying to take it from you? No, that is not the God that we are talking about. What he's saying here is it's not a performance thing. It's a heart thing. What was it that was going on in Abel's heart that allowed him to give the best of himself, to give the best of his best lamb, the one that, the part that everybody wanted? What was it that let him give that? And what was it that caused Cain to withhold and just give some? Think about it, why? Why do we do that? Why do we, what makes us give the best of ourselves? And what is it that causes us to withdraw and hold on to things that are ours? If you think about it, like, when are the times when you wanna give the most of yourself? It's when you're in love, usually. Like, when you love someone, you wanna do everything for them, at least at the beginning, because you're just so in love and you just wanna give them everything. You wanna do everything, and you just, you'll go to extravagant lengths to do and give everything. And then a love for a child is another example of it, which is the example that is used. When you have a newborn baby, it is pooping, it is crying, it is keeping you up all night, and all you can do is look at it and say, this is the most beautiful thing in the entire universe. That's crazy. So um, so the issue here is what was going on in Cain and Abel's hearts, and, and and so what did Cain do? He took Abel away, his brother away. And instil, instead of dealing with his heart, he destroyed him. He killed him. He murdered his brother. He destroyed the one he saw as a competitor, the one who God approved. Even though God said, if you, he even gave him the plan, hey, if you do this, if you do what's right, you can, you, you're going to be in the same right relationship as me. But instead, he killed him. He didn't want to deal with what was going on in his heart. But God could see all. He even, God afterwards even invites him into conversation and said, hey, what happened? Even though he knows, right? He invited him back into conversation even after he killed his brother. He didn't push him away right away. He said, tell me what happened here. So think about that with your brothers and sisters. Are there things in them that make you want to like murder them? (laughs) Murder, (laughs) you can take that how you will. Jesus redefined what murder is. Hating is murder. And we can also say, oh, well, I don't hate. But do you cut your brother and sisters off from relationship when they do things that bother you? Like there is a thing about necessary space to like, but to work through what's going on in our hearts. Do you it's okay to do that. But do you just cut them off completely because what you see in them is not something that you like. It's not something that makes sense to you. It doesn't, you know, like think about this because John is really concerned about fellowship and he really cares that they stay together. So don't be like Cain who murdered his brother and don't say that you don't murder because we all do metaphorically. So the devil's work is to devour us, to tempt us towards anything that doesn't look like love. He tempts us to take care of ourselves, to not live as God's children, to be independent, to figure things out on our own, to withhold from God, mostly because we don't actually believe that we are God's children. We don't believe that there is a God who provides. We have not received the image of God that has appeared to us in scripture and appeared to us in community with one another. And Abel realized the core truth that God loves so much that all he had could be given away as a gift. So verse 16 says the moral of the story, kind of. (laughs) This is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love. Looks like this is how love is made known. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So how are you doing on that? And I think, reflect on that. So he goes on to talk about material possessions. And I don't think we should gloss over this. He's actually talking about material possessions. It says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So it's interesting because... The teaching says that matter doesn't matter. Material things don't matter. So you can do what you want with it. Here, John's saying, our material possessions actually do matter. Material things are important to a degree, contrary to what these Gnostic ideas were teaching. Um, they have a purpose. They were meant to be used to love others. They were our gifts, like in the story of Cain and Abel, they were given a land to farm. Cow, or sheep and goats to take care of. They were given that as a gift, and the, that gift was meant to be given. So if we have something from ourselves, our money, and I think we shouldn't gloss over that, but for those who, of us who maybe feel like we don't have money, although we talked about during uh, the giving time of how significant it is to give out of the little that you have, but our time, our money, um, anything. If we have something and we keep it for ourselves, we are not living in God's love. We are not joining in his work. In fact, we're joining in on the enemy's work because this is a radical way of living, laying down your life for someone and using the things we have to give. It's radical because in a world where there is no God, the only thing you have is the things you have. So in verses 19 to 24, he ends with an encouragement these are some intense things to think about. Uh, so he starts with this encouragement and he ends with this encouragement. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts that rest in his presence. It says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So his desire is to put these believers who've been through a lot at rest. These are hard teachings, but God is not a God of condemnation. Condemnation is actually part of the devil's work. There's another scripture that says, there's no condemnation for those who live in Christ Jesus. Jesus has paid the price for all the things that we have done and all the ways we've separated ourselves from God. And God wants our hearts to be at rest like little children. It says that he, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So if you hear these things and you're like, oh my gosh, condemnation, what more do I need to do to fix this? You're missing the entire point. But the point here is, are you God's child? And are you? it's only when we receive that that we have any hope of living any differently. When God's seed, the Holy Spirit takes root in us. So if we live in his ways... He goes on to say, so if we do live in right relationship, if we live close to him, as Michael said last week, if we remain in him, if we remain in the tension of all the ways that we doubt, we don't understand, we're scared to give away our things, if we remain in his presence with the Holy Spirit, our hearts, they won't condemn us if we actually know the message of the gospel. And we can have confidence before God. And verse 22 is interesting because I think it's a great way to wrap up all of this that um, we can receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So if our hearts are in a posture of giving where everything we have is his anyways, he's pleased for us to ask for things because he knows that we're gonna use them to do his work that we're not going to use them to be more known in the way that the world wants us, wants, tempts us to be known, but we're actually going to use them to make his name known, to, to help Jesus appear to this world where there's so much darkness, so much suffering. That's what he wants to do with the things that he gives us. So things aren't bad. Materials aren't bad. He wants to give these things to, the, to us. So I think... That's something to consider as you consider your lives, as you consider um, what you're studying, as you consider the work you're choosing, as you're considering how you spend your time, as you consider who you're going to marry, how you're going to remain single, how you're going to not do all the things that the world says are the right things to do. How are you going to remain in this hard truth? Because yeah, just consider these things and consider, first of all, his great love for us because he loves, a father loves to give good gifts to his children. So for everything that we sacrifice, just like how Jesus laid down his life for us, he longs to give us a hundred times more. So we're just going to end with uh, communion. So I just invite you in this time to, to really consider those things that are going on in your heart things that he's speaking to you thank you for listening to the jubilee montreal podcast for more information on jubilee montreal visit us online at www.jvlmontreal.org